Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Very excited to announce the newest podcast to the Ringer Podcast Network family. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. So this pod is gambling, 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 and more gambling. Yes, I have a gambling problem, and yeah. I want to share it with you. I want to yeah. make it your problem. And it's not just football. NHL playoffs, uh, NBA playoffs, baseball, horse racing, there's boxing, UFC. When we hit- SummerSlam. Oh, all the wrestling. When we hit July, we have a, a hot dog eating contest for Nathan's. And some surprise celebrity guests. Yeah. All right. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcast. And we're thinking about once a week, right? Yeah, let's do it. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and co-host who's on the other line, the sniper wolf of selfies. It's Jason Concepcion. Hey, Jason. It's so great to be back in New York for the two days I was. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, we were in the same room on the same stage. Sneaking up on Kojima, finally. Yes, yes, we we tweeted our selfies with Kojima. We were warming up the crowd for him at our event, which you are about to hear. And we found ourselves in the green room with Kojima, and we were both taken aback to be there with him. It was like it was like seeing Prince, as our yeah. colleague Justin Charity would say. <laughs> it was. It, neither of us is the type to be starstruck in most contexts, but. Because he is such an enigmatic figure, you don't really expect to see him in the flesh <laughs> you, like that. You don't. <laughs> then there he, when he is. I, I saw him walking through the hallway after his panel, and he had like four really big bodyguards around him. <laughs> and they were clearing people to the side of the hallway so that he could just move very easily through. Yeah, he had glowing tentacles attached to each of them that retracted into his body when he got where he was going. So we were both highly unprofessional. We took some stealthy selfies (laughs) and he was not aware of his surroundings enough to know that that was happening as far as we know. So you're about to hear our conversation live from the inaugural Tribeca Games Festival in New York this past weekend. We did a Q&A with Michael Chu, the lead writer of Overwatch, and Kiki Wolfkill, who is the studio head for Transmedia of 343 Industries, the company that makes Halo. So we talked to both of them. I guess the focus is on storytelling in games, but we ranged around and talked about a bunch of stuff. So we're just going to run that talk now in its entirety and we will be back on friday for our regular episode so this is just extra achievement oriented so glad we got to do this our first live event for this podcast hope you all enjoy it and we will talk to you all as regularly scheduled later this week thank you I am Ben Lindbergh. This is Jason Concepcion. We are the co-hosts of the Achievement Oriented podcast at The Ringer, which you are all guests on right now, or you would be if you were to scream something right now, which you you don't have to do. There you go. (laughs) We are... We're talking to two specific guests today about two franchises that have robbed all of us of many hours of our lives. So we're going to talk about Halo a little later in the program, but right now we're going to talk about Overwatch. So we have with us Michael Chu who is the lead writer of Overwatch and the second worst Overwatch player on the Overwatch team wow. at Blizzard, <laughs> by his own admission. Hello, Michael. Hey, yep, that's uh, probably pretty accurate. <laughs> it's a high baseline, probably. So tell us about your history. How did you get to Blizzard? At what point in the sort of circuitous path to release of Overwatch did you join the team? Um, yeah, so my path to Blizzard actually started quite a while ago. Um, 
I, uh, I made the curious decision to uh, drop out of college um, to become a QA tester. Um, I worked on Diablo 2, it was the first game that I, I tested on. Um, so I did that for a few years, and then I eventually got a job as a um, one of the first quest designers on World of Warcraft with uh, Jeff Kaplan, who is a, of Overwatch fame, and uh, and Pat Nagel, another guy that I've worked with a lot in my career. And so, um, yeah, so I, I worked as a designer for a long time. Um, I think being a quest designer really made me realize that I had a passion for telling stories and building worlds in games, and World of Warcraft is an amazing opportunity to do that. Um, and so did that for a while. Uh, also worked on Diablo 3 in the expansion pack as a designer and writer, kind of doing the same things. And then, um, you know, one day uh, Chris Metzen was saying, hey, we're thinking about this new game and we're thinking we're going to need to develop some stories in the world and how would you like to do it? And I said, that sounds completely amazing. So obviously I, I jumped at that opportunity. So um, Overwatch had been in development for a little bit at that point. They sort of had a core idea of what combat was going to be like. They had the first few heroes done and I think they realized like, well, we, we're going to have to start building out the, the story and universe now. So that's where I came in. How many people here have played Overwatch? Playing? How many Hanzo mains? Can you please leave? Um, you can't ask them like that. There's... Um, Overwatch being a multiplayer game, there's not an obvious lane for delivering story. So how do you how do you approach that in this game? Yeah, so we we knew early on that obviously we weren't going to do a campaign. There was going to be a traditional story, but for us, we felt that it was equally important to develop Overwatch the game, but also this universe because Blizzard, you know, that's what we do. We've got Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo. All are these amazing in-depth universes with a lot of history, and we wanted Overwatch someday to be able to to stand up to that. And I think what we've learned about development over the years is that, you know, when you're making these heroes and you're making the levels and the art, it really helps to have the story background to help figure out, you know, what kind of content you want to make, you know, context for heroes and, and levels. So we knew we wanted to do that. And uh, we basically made this decision that that stuff would exist outside of the game and you'd just sort of see it reflected inside the game. Just like Little lines in the pregame lobby, stuff like that. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that it taught us is that we had to be really efficient because there really just wasn't, there weren't that many places to get story out inside Overwatch. And uh, one of the one of the ways that I think is actually most effective is the you know pregame dialogue, and it's just like, and it's really constrained because the system is just not particularly complex, and it's like one line, one response, or you know, just to to get a little bit of character out. We also have lines that play, you know, when you eliminate someone, and it's you know the thing about these characters are playing the game, you really only know them through like two things, like how they feel about capping objectives, you know, like you know all about the relationship with the payload. Um, and I think the only other thing you know is like how they feel when they like eliminate someone. And that's like, that's your windows into these characters. So how did you decide on the initial roster size? Because you have multiplayer games out there with hundreds of heroes and champions and you get the benefit of variety, but can also be a little intimidating or overwhelming for a new player. So how did you say we're going to start with 21 and then slowly ramp up to 24, 25 now? Yeah, so a lot of it was feel. You know, we wanted it to feel like you had enough heroes to choose from, that you had different options in different situations, because one of the things we really wanted to focus on was this idea of being able to change your, your team on the fly. Also, you know, I think one of the things is we want all of our heroes to feel really unique and really like they're, you know, they could be the hero of their own game. Um, but as to like the number itself, um, it's sort of, it was mostly like a gut gut feel, I think. You know, at different points in the project, we sort of went through it again. The first time was at the original BlizzCon launch, you know, how many characters will will sell the idea of Overwatch, that you've got a bit, pretty big cast, and you've got 
options. And uh, so, you know, we decided on, wow, I think it was 12. Um, but then we had the poster and we had to throw in some more. Just like, ah, it just feels like, you know, maybe there's some more out there. And then we went through the same process again at launch where we were, it was really a pretty, um, it's pretty cutthroat. We had like all the heroes lined up. We had the ideas for heroes we still wanted to make. And, and some of them didn't make it. For example, like Sombra uh, was originally slated to be one of the original, but she just didn't quite make it in. And so we, we saved her for, uh, for after launch. What's the character creation process like? Does it start with a mechanic? Does it start with an idea about a power? Does it start with a look? So I think there's basically like three ways characters come, come about. And, you know, they really come from anywhere on the team. So even though I say like, one of the you know mechanics is a way the characters come out. It's not always the game designers who are coming up with that. It could be anyone on the team. But you know, usually for game mechanics, it's like we recognize that there is a a need mechanically. A good example of this was early on after we had put Torbjorn and Bastion into the game. Uh, we had a thing that we referred to as Turret Gate at work because. Um, Basically, everyone was just getting murdered by these uh, super defensive characters. And so to help alleviate that, we knew like indirect fire, um, Junkrat, basically, we knew he had to go into the cast to help deal with that problem. And then sometimes they're just characters where there is a game mechanic or a gameplay style that we'd like to get in. For example, with Ana, we wanted to have a skill-based support character because, you know, there's sort of the stereotype that, you know, if you're skill, if you're high skill, you're going to play DPS. Why would you play support? And we wanted to, you know, try and have people play a character they, they might not have otherwise. So that's, that's one way. Um, the other way is, you know, really lucky on the Overwatch team, we work with these fantastic artists. Um, our assistant art director, Arnold Sang, who, uh, did the art for the first 21 heroes of the game. Sometimes he'll, he'll just draw something and you're like, okay, well, we have to make that. Like, um, you know, like Winston, like you see that picture and you're like, well, there's oh, your hero and oh. it's, you got to figure out what to do later. Um, and I'd say the third one is maybe there's some sort of story we'd like to tell or some part of the universe that we'd like to highlight with the hero. And so we'll start with that. And I think what the great thing about the development process on Overwatch is once we have an idea from one of those three lanes, we like really quickly get together and we're trying to figure out like, okay, here's a basic story, here's basic mechanics, here's the basic art so that we can all really tune in and then um, drive the design forward from there. If a game clicks with a community the way that Overwatch has, the characters are out there and you kind of can present them and portray them exactly how you want and then fans will do what they want with them and, you know, fan art and fan fiction and put them in all these different contexts that you probably never thought about or wanted <laughs> to think about. Um, so how does that make you feel as one of the creators of the character? Are you excited to see these different contexts? Are you looking at it possessively? Like, this is not the way that I drew this character up. You know, I think when we were working on Overwatch, we told people, you know, our, our dream is that people will really like these characters. We're making a lot of them. So um, we hope people will, will find ones that they enjoy and, and, and ones that they, you know, will associate with. And what I really take away from, you know, the, the fan art and from the, the cosplay and everything, this amazing community that's supporting the game is that players have, you know, they like these, they like these heroes, they like these characters. And that is ultimately what we're going for. So it's great, you know, that people are able to really take things that we created and, you know, use them the way they like and just kind of really explore the characters and show their attachment to them. So I think it's really great. And um, I'm very appreciative of all of it. The, the characters in Overwatch, it's certainly, if not the most diverse cast of characters, it's the most diverse in an FPS. Once you commit to having a diverse cast of characters, how do you, how do you then do it in a responsible way? 
So it is, uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we faced in making Overwatch, and also one of its uh, biggest strengths, in my opinion, is when we made the decision to set the game on Earth. Because Blizzard had done, we've done science fiction universes, we've done, um, we've done fantasy, dark fantasy. And uh, I think what we wanted to explore was, like, is there a way that we can apply some of these lessons we've learned from creating these fictional universes into our own version of, you know, fictional Earth? Obviously, there's some differences. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges about that, right, is, you know, we we're not experts on everything Come on. on the planet. Um, you know, Wikipedia really only takes you so far. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that we're really lucky um, for at Blizzard, though, is that we have this international presence. We have a lot of teams all around the world. And one thing that's really been fun about Overwatch is that we're able to tap into these teams and actually have them contribute in a creative way. Like, you know, I don't know how to write funny German lines or, you know, funny Spanish lines. So, you know, I can, I can go to the localization teams to the translators and be like, hey, can you help me out with this? Here's like a joke I'd like, or hey, if you got a good pun, just like throw it over here. Maybe I'll see what I can do with that. Um, so that's really cool. Um, but I think that ultimately, you know, we feel like it's really important that Overwatch represents Earth. And, you know, that's diversity culturally, you know, just all the different places in the world. And so we try and do our homework um, and we, we try to do the best we can. Like, you know, sometimes we might make some mistakes, but um, we always it, it is a it is an important goal for us. And so we're always trying to go the extra mile to uh, to incorporate that in Overwatch. And how closely and how are you monitoring feedback from the community all the time as far as the look of a character, a skin, or even down to gameplay tweaks and balance? Yeah, I mean, we really like to look at um, at player feedback through all of our awesome communities. You know, I know... That must be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of feedback out there. Um we're uh, we're a pretty seasoned development team, so I think we've got uh, we've got pretty thick skin. Actually, uh, you know, one of the things I said is like, how do you prepare for taking lots of feedbacks? Like, if you work at Blizzard for a while, um, you will be exposed to a lot of feedback, a lot of uh, unfiltered feedback. And I'd say that particularly at uh, on the Overwatch team, uh, the design team all sits together. Um, all the designers sit in the room with with Jeff and um, with our production director, our art director, and our sound director, and uh, the Opinions come flying fast and furious. There is no filter. Like people aren't even thinking about anything before it comes out of their mouth. So um, you know, you get used to that. But I think as our, our as creators and as designers, our job is to take that feedback and find out you know what the the core issue is, and then try to uh, try to address it. But um, yeah, we totally listen to fan feedback on that. Has that has that process changed any of the characters in 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 any interesting ways? That's an interesting question. Obviously, from a design standpoint, I think um, primarily, you know, when we look at look at how characters how characters are playing, I think you know we have ideas of how characters are supposed to be played, and sometimes that we don't see that come out in the way that the uh, the community uses a character. And I think some of that is okay, maybe the way that the character was designed or balanced isn't quite supporting that, or it might just be maybe we need to take it back to the drawing board and, and take a look and, and see if there are some tweaks um, that can be made. Like, you know, Symmetra, obviously, big changes. Um, and I think that was a lot of feedback, but also our original intention, it just it wasn't quite wasn't quite coming to fruition. Obviously, you get like Symmetra was a very conditional pick, and so you know we tried to uh, bump her up. Shouts to all the attack Symmetras out there. <laughs> so, give us a sense of which other people on the team you're talking to on a daily basis when you're planning a character or tweaking a character. 
when you come up with a concept for a character, are you thinking of personality traits primarily, and then someone will go mock up a concept image, and that will then change what you were thinking, or do you generally have a rough idea of what this character will look like, and then you'll see him or her on the page, and maybe that will change something about your initial concept? You know, so I can speak primarily from the story standpoint, and I think what is really amazing about the team that I get to work with is that everyone is really in tune on the story, which you might not expect from a game that, again, doesn't have an obvious, you know, like campaign or a linear narrative, um, but everyone is really always interested in the story. They're always asking me questions, even early on. They're like, hey, can you tell us, like, some 20-year backstory in this character? I was like, whoa, I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. Like, do you have any ideas? Um, but primarily, I work with, uh, I'd say, on the on the hero conception, um, obviously, Jeff Kaplan, um, Jeff Goodman, who is our lead hero designer, and uh, Arnold Sang, who is our assistant art director. And we really, at the, at the outset, talk a lot about these characters. We talk about personality. We talk about, we'll go through some different art concepts. And I think during that process, each of us is trying to hone in on what we think is important and the other people are taking away from what we think is important and trying to reflect them in the skins. Um, and I think that's a really fun process of um, development. Like something that just popped in my head is when we were developing Anna, we were talking about like, oh, okay, so she's going to have a healing gun or whatever. I'm like, a healing gun. Okay, that makes sense. So she's going to shoot people to heal them. Okay. Um, and so we had this idea that like, oh, maybe it's kind of like Mercy's tech or something that she's adapted. And so that helps the artist because then they were, they were able to take some aspects of Mercy's design and then apply them to different aspects of Anna's design, you know, like her weapon and her, the bullets and everything. So, or I guess darts. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of how it goes. How much this might be outside of your concerns, but how much do you think about, does Blizzard think about player skill level. For instance, Winston, you see him a lot in lower level comps, in uh, kind of like medium level, he loses his uh, utility because, you know, healers aren't as good, blah, 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 blah. And then at the high levels, it's like Superman. You've never seen anything like this. Um, how do you, I mean, how important is it that uh, the player base has some kind of consistency of, of experience? Yeah, I mean, so speaking as the uh, probably second worst uh, member of the design team at Overwatch, they should listen to my opinion a lot more. Um, but I think that it is it is important that there is a continuity of experience throughout the different skill levels. Um, I often joke that when I'm watching esports, it's like, oh, like Winston, for example, you know, that is not the Winston that I play. My experience with Winston is that I jump in and then I drop a shield and then I die three seconds later, right? And I watch and I watch uh, I watch an esports uh, Winston. It's like, oh, he's jumping around. He's killing. He's killing people. Right, he's I don't know how kills. that happens. You know, he never dies. When it's I wrote like... the, you know, when we came up with the story for Winston, we didn't want him to be this like efficient, you know, trained killer with a lightning gun. Um, but I do think that even though there are these variances at the different skill levels and how the characters are played. I think that, you know, the core idea of the characters still come through. And I think that, you know, you should still be able to, to approach a character that's a higher skill level like Tracer and get the fun of the character because, you know, like I am by far not a good Tracer player, but I still get the, I get the experience. Um, and I guess I can also see, I can appreciate people who are much better with Tracer than I am. <laughs> So we're about to talk about Halo, which is another property with an expanded universe and lore. I wonder, just from your experience with Overwatch, can any game benefit from having that sort of ancillary story material that some players may or may not even be aware of, but it's out there if you want it? Are there only certain genres or certain games where it makes sense to 
have that framework surrounding the the core gameplay? I mean, so I, I may be biased, but I think that I think that every game, you know, is it is takes an advantage from having story. With Overwatch, one of the things was we weren't sure how much the community that of players who would end up playing Overwatch would care about the story. One of our goals was can the Overwatch story, you know, if you're just kind of I just want to play the shooter, right? Could we put enough interest in or kind of subliminally make you interested in these characters or learn something about these characters to the point where you might be interested in like, oh, hey, there's a comic, maybe I'll read that. Oh, there's a there's this neat animated short. Maybe I'll I'll give a uh, five or six minutes to watch that. And so we were kind of hoping that maybe we could, you know, coax people into being interested in the universe. But we also, you know, we we're storytellers um, in addition to game makers. And I think that we also felt like we just wanted to have this big universe that people could interact with because who's to say that you don't read a comic or watch a, a animated short like The Last Bastion or something and then you become interested in the game. Um, you might be surprised after, you know, experience something like The Last Bastion. I think the gameplay of Overwatch might surprise you. But, um, you know, you, you still get, I, I think you could still get some of that um, through the game and through the story. So I really feel like, Yes. I was thinking Tetris immediately came to mind, and I was thinking, you know, maybe. I mean, if fighting games can have uh, little story interstitials, maybe Tetris? Cutscenes? Does, does it ever uh, <laughs> bum you out that some significant percentage of the player base is just never going to interact with something that you created? Something you wrote for, for a particular character? <laughs> well, I, you know, it'd be great, but Fortunately for me, you know, they all have to sit in the uh, in the waiting for a match to start. So they're all right. listening to those yeah. voice lines, and um, <laughs> there's no your, way to turn that off yet. So what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite voice line that you, that you've written so far? Oh, my favorite voice. That's hard. Um, in character only. <laughs> in character. Yeah, I think uh, so. This is like a magic one, but uh, May. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Actually, May has a lot of my favorite ones because that was actually. I feel bad for this, but the actress actually she just made a mistake. And she was saying, she was like, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. And I turned to the engineer. I was like, are we recording everything? And he's like, yep. I'm like, send that to me. That'll be great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I love that line. I, I Honestly, I have so much fun writing the voice lines, uh, you know, putting little references and jokes into there. So, yeah. Often we see if there's a single-player-only game, people will clamor for multiplayer. And if there's a multiplayer game, people will say, can we get a campaign mode? Are you constantly thinking, I would love to explore this in a full-length campaign? This character's story is so interesting to me. This could be the backbone of a whole game on its own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably the first thought they had when they said, hey, Michael, would you like to help develop the story for this uh, online team-based multiplayer shooter? I'd probably like, what about, what about a campaign? Wouldn't that be great? Um, so obviously, we, like you said, we hear that a lot from people who are saying, like, oh, we really want, you know, some, like, co-op or some more story-based stuff. We tried a little bit with Junkenstein's Revenge for Halloween last year, and people seemed to really enjoy that. We had a lot of fun making it. You know, I think we're interested in telling stories in different ways in Overwatch, and um, after Junkenstein's Revenge, we just got more and more feedback about that, and so we had the idea, like, what if we did a, a seasonal event in Overwatch that took place in the universe, inside the canon story, um, and then it sort of became a, a natural thing, like, oh, well, what if we did what if we did like a little mission? And once we started talking about that, you know, we, we knew there was a lot of stuff we had learned from Junkenstein's Revenge that we wanted to iterate on and try in a new setting. We wanted to try and tackle more of a traditional mission. And I think uh, we're really happy with how it turned out. Obviously, there's a ton of things that we would love to, uh, we would love to look at and maybe you know, see if we can do another one of these. Is there a particular character backstory that you enjoy more than any other? <laughs> um, you know, I'd like... 
I really, I have to like enjoy all of them, right? Of course. Um, but uh, it's really, you know, the last characters that I wor was working on. I'm sort of in a in a period now where I'm not specifically, but uh, you know, something that comes to mind because I've been talking about um, this is a uh, Junkrat and Roadhog. They are. Junkrat. <laughs> they're, it's funny, right? Because they seem on the surface like these really um, kind of simple, simple characters. But um, I think that even in, the, in their kind of jokey nature, there's like a little bit more to them. You know, they're, they're both kind of dealing with the fallout of the, um, of the, the this Omnium destroying, uh, exploding in the middle of the Australian outback. And it, the interesting difference between the two characters is that like uh, Junkrat is like a product of that world. He's only known the Mad Max terror, you know, post-apocalypse post-apocalyptic universe, whereas Roadhog has sort of seen it all fall apart and it sort of shows how they're, they're different. So I think that's, that's pretty fun. But no, I love, I love all of their backstories. And I guess lastly, how has your job evolved throughout the development process? I mean, when you were coming up with all of the characters that were going to come out at one time, was that a busier time than now when you're parceling out one at a time? Are you getting more sleep now? <laughs> uh, actually, I have most definitely not been getting more sleep now um, because I think, you know, obviously working on Uprising was a really big, uh, it was a really big project that we did on a pretty, pretty quick timeline. There's also, I wrote a few comics, so um, writing those takes a, another big chunk of time. But yeah, it's uh, certainly the, the pace of hero releases slowing down has not uh, particularly um, lowered the amount of story content that we're working on. And I think, you know, that makes me very happy. So I'm happy to be that busy um, because we still have a lot of story stuff to come in, in this new year, even after Uprising. You know, we have, have more comics on the way and we have lots of stories to tell. And I think that the passion that people have shown for Overwatch, not only the game, but also the universe, we're excited to continue to, uh, to feed that. All right. Well, Michael, thank you very much. All Michael right. Chu, thank you. Overwatch. <laughs>
answering questions and answering the directions that the narrative had already taken to find a path forward for us as we started to tell the story. We're always telling these huge, big stories. We've got Infinity, it's the biggest ship that has ever been launched. But in the middle of all of that, we've got this very small personal story between Master Chief and Cortana. You tell a story with every detail that you put into the game. Immersion is really what allows somebody to believe your universe and also to become emotionally caught up in your universe. Ready to get back to work? I thought you'd never ask. How do we make sure the sights and the sounds and the things that they're feeling as a player inhabiting that suit really comes through more clearly? And, you know, technology has allowed us to do that with much higher fidelity than back in the CE days. You do know you don't have to wait until the last minute just to impress me, right? You want a player to be able to ask themselves what it is to be a hero. Is the sacrifice worth it? I often think of him as like Atlas, you know, like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulder all the time. Chief and Cortana are the same person, but she has always been the reflection of his humanity. People don't play Halo to watch a soap opera, and yet you don't want to just be kind of pulp. To me, it's a natural progression of this story, and it takes this relationship to the place it should go to. All right, so we're going to bring up Kiki Wolfkill. She is the studio head of Transmedia at 343 Industries. Hey, guys. Hello. Is this espresso for me? <laughs> I think so, yeah. How exciting. Use some. So <laughs> I guess since that was so Master Chief focused, let's start there. There's been a yeah. lot of discussion in the last day or two about how much Master Chief should be in a Halo game, how much was in Halo 5, how much will be in Halo 6. So. You have this iconic character, but he's not the sensitive type, really. He's gravel-voiced, he's got the helmet, he's got the armor. How does that limit the type of stories you can tell? How do you decide how to supplement him and, and how close to the spotlight he should be? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, of sort of his capacity to, to be a character, I think it's it's probably less about his his usage of few words, and it's more about how do you balance a character so that you're bringing identity to them and personality and emotion to them while also letting the player fill up a lot of that space. And I think that's the, the interesting balance of you do want the player to inhabit the suit and bring what they have to the suit, as well as take something from the character. And so I think, I think uh, that's that's a little bit of the the nuance of of chief, you know. I, I think it's how much how much chief do you need? I, I think is a hard question. It you know as a as a developer and storyteller on the franchise, you know, I still have things that I, I think we want to express with the character, right? We we set out an arc for the character, and and you don't just sort of put someone that that um, you've developed over time away. There is there is a future there. I think how many minutes do you play him versus not is is a tough one, and a lot of that has to do with what you put around it. So uh, for us, as we think about Master Chief, he's a character we love, and so I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Halo really is a, a vulnerable franchise. I mean, you could, it's responsible almost solely for the Xbox existing as a console. It's responsible for almost ruining my life uh, during yes. the Halo 2 days. Um, how do you balance that consistency of feel where this is a Halo game, these are the characteristics of a Halo game, while also introducing things from other games that maybe should influence something in the shooter genre? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of the quintessential struggle of, of any game franchise that's been along and around for so long. I mean, we've been around for over 15 years, which in game years is actually 
It's like 150 Huge. If you take years. Mario, <laughs> which is um, the longest. Uh, yeah, so there is um, a really uh, interesting challenge that, frankly, is a daily conversation around what are the things that are really core to the franchise? What are the things that people are just used to, right? And not necessarily core, but it's been there before, so there's an expectation that it's going to be there again. And then how do you incorporate the fact that, you know, audiences are changing, all of the things around us are affecting our behavior, um, and what we need out of entertainment and what we need out of our games every day. So how do you, how do you also think about that? Not to mention the competitive landscape. Um, and so I think for us, we focus very much on some sort of core values of what Halo is beyond, uh, sort of perpetuating the storylines in the universe. And we do think a lot about, about how do we start to shift and change. And, and we've had successes and we've had failures, I think, through Halo 4 and Halo 5 in terms of, well, maybe let's try this because, you know, this is, this is something we're seeing. And, um, you know, for us, ultimately, we have to sort of feel our own way through that. And, um, you know, we are lucky in having a very passionate community. And, you know, they're really vocal when they like something or don't like something. And we've also seen the community have an initial reaction that um, has also changed over time, right? That, that expectation that, well, it was like this before. Um, you can definitely get, after that, get over that hurdle with the right gameplay. Sprint was something like that. I, I yes. remember introducing yes. Sprint. It seems so, uh, so normal now, and at the time it was like a controversy. Yeah, and, it's, and frankly, Sprint is still controversial, mm. right? You're, you're always going to have people who, who have real allegiance to a style of play and maybe have had the most success with that style of play, or maybe it's nostalgic, and so it's hard to move away from that. Um, but I think it means we just have to move forward with, with conviction. And what about behind the scenes? How do you balance continuity in the creative team versus bringing in new blood, especially for a franchise that's been around for this long, that's switched studios, people are going to come and go. Is there value to having people who were around in the old Halo days who can say, this is how we tackled this problem? Or is it also beneficial to have someone who's coming to the franchise in a new way, looking at it in a different way, maybe grew up playing Halo and understands it in a completely different way? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely need both. We have, a, we have a really diverse team in terms of history with Halo. We have people who've been there uh, uh, since the beginning and people who are, who are new to the franchise. And, and to be honest, our audience is really diverse, right? And so that helps us think about how we stretch the boundaries of, of what Halo is. There's definitely a value in the people who've been there for a long time, both from a canon perspective, because the canon is so deep. Like, I, I can't, I can't um, be, be accurate with dates and names all the time. And so there is sort of a, a historical knowledge of canon that's vital. But I also think that there's, there's a benefit to... We have a huge sandbox. That's a huge part of what makes Halo distinctive from a gameplay perspective. And that takes a lot of trial and error. So we need the fresh perspectives coming in saying, oh my God, how have you not ever tried X, Y, and Z? And you need people who've been there before who've been like, totally tried X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Here's what happened. As technology has gotten better, more powerful, and your ability to create kind of more realistic images has gotten better, how has that changed your storytelling at all? Yeah, I mean, I, um, so I've been in games for um, the dawn of game time, it feels like. Uh, so even before Halo, spent a lot of time with some different story-based games. And, you know, I, I've been there through all the technical challenges of how do you even get a 
QuickTime to run without looking <laughs> pixelated. Like Bink was amazing when it happened. And so there was a time when our focus on storytelling was how, how good can you make a full motion video look, right? Like that was, it felt like all the energy went to that. And then we sort of figured that out. And then at the same time, you, you have a lot of effort going into how do we try and build story with, with the elements happening around you, knowing that we don't have a lot of, of power to do interactive story. And so I think what you found was really in the, in the sort of, you know, 2010 through 2013, this area where you get amazing interactive storytelling, which is atmospheric storytelling, the audio and the visuals and the things happening moment to moment are really informing story around you. And at the same time, having these sort of extraordinary cinematics in between that feature your character, the way you've designed them. And so I think we've gotten to a place where the technology really allows us to craft story as opposed to figuring out how we can insert it and where those tiny pockets and moments where we can put story in. Now we can really design it all the way around, around the player. And so I think we're getting a lot more thoughtful storytelling um, as well as just a lot of different varieties in how people are, are delivering story. Do you see either campaign mode or multiplayer as closer to the foundation of Halo? Are they on an equal level with you? Because there are undoubtedly people who would get the next Halo game if it were just purely for the multiplayer. They like the gameplay. You can almost randomly generate scenarios and they'll be back for the shooting and the running. But there are other people who want the story. They want that foundation, that driver, that motivation. So how do you think about that and balance that? Yeah, I mean, it's been a challenge because, uh, you know, we, I feel like we just keep making bigger and bigger games. And at some point, like, it's, it's really big today. Um, and again, that's because we do have a really diverse audience. You know, we do have people. I myself am primarily a campaign player and co-op player. Um, I love the experience of story. I love first-person shooting, and I love that combination or playing cooperatively with my friends. And we have parts of the audience that are all about the competitive play, all about the competitive play. And so um, it is an interesting balance, and it's not a place where we can say, we're going to say one is more important than the other. We're really in a place now where um, we have to be able to deliver on on both of those aspects. And what we've looked at doing is how do we start to try and merge them a little bit a little bit more, um, which is a trickier challenge. How do we try and bring a little bit of story to competitive multiplayer? And how do we make it easier for someone who is a campaign player to start to have multiplayer experiences? So I think that's more of our focus versus thinking one is more than important than the other. And, you know, the big underlying piece of it is is the universe, and, and that's something we have to keep feeding. The title really is uh, was a pioneer in the early esports space um, back in the mid-2000s. Um, it's, cha it's still changing now, but it's, the esports has changed so much in the last, in the intervening years. How has that affected the way you produce Halo, the way you think about the series? Yeah, I mean, I think, so... Um, it's been amazing to get back into esports. Like, I think we always thought of it as part of our DNA, but as 343, you know, we came into the franchise with Halo 4, and our focus then was very much, let's make sure we're respectful of the IP and execute on a great Halo experience and great multiplayer. And, you know, I think Halo 4 is an example of where we experimented with some things with multiplayer, some of which um, uh, we, we chose not to carry forward. And so we really didn't get a chance to focus on esports until Halo 5. And I think, I think that was really energizing for all of us. A, because we do love esports. For me, I say I'm not a competitive player, 
but I watch a ton of competitive uh, multiplayer in Halo in particular because I enjoy it. I love competition. I love the dynamic. I love knowing what it takes for those players to get to that level. And so for me, that's, that's really exciting. And so getting back to esports feels great. And, you know, when we were developing Halo 5 multiplayer, we brought in some of the ex-pro players to help. You know, we do daily play testing. We do a lot of really s small, fine-tuning, iterative balance um, day after day after day. And so we definitely had that team with us to take that to take that feedback and help us get to a place where we knew we had the right foundation to build the Halo Championship series What kind on. of feedback did you get from them? Like, move this rocket launcher three meters back, that, that kind of thing? Uh, a lot of it has to do, part of it is is the map design um, uh, in terms of really focused, intense team play and uh, spawn points. A lot of it had to do with um, with weapon balance and in the feel of certain weapons. We were also adding new, new weapons um, at the time. And so there are things that, frankly, I probably wouldn't even notice because I don't have the skill. Um, I can't no scope with this, man. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, we, we did make it a deliberate part of our, our Halo 5 design plan, and we're carrying that forward. You know, uh, Halo 5 Esports and the Halo Championship Series is has great energy around it right now, and so we're continuing to, to tweak gameplay for the pros. When a franchise has as much backstory, as much accumulated weight as Halo does either in the core games or in the expanded universe. You know, we were just talking to Michael about Overwatch and he basically got to start from scratch and he can draw characters up and that's all that exists about that character. Whereas Halo 6 comes along, you have to choose how much you want to catch people up on here's what you missed last time on Halo. So do you want to have people with an encyclopedic knowledge of the important story beats that came before or do you just say we're reintroducing these characters every time and people are going to be coming fresh to this and that's okay. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's, um, there is a lot of canon, <laughs> admittedly. Uh, and I, you know, I think, I think it's, I will admit that it's easy for us to drink a little bit of our own Kool-Aid or we, we get so deep into the lore that we forget how unapproachable it can feel sometimes for, for someone who's new. And so it's tough because on the one hand, we have an obligation to carry the stories forward. Uh, on the other hand, we do want to bring new people into the universe, and we want it to feel approachable and accessible. I think that um, we are working to do a better job of carrying stories forward without carrying a lot of extraneous detail with it. Um, and so I think that, you know, we can carry Chief's story forward or, or Cyrus Team's story forward or any number of components of the Halo universe and do it maybe a little more cleanly than than we have in the past so it doesn't feel... Um, like there's just this giant wall of, you know, personal pronouns to get over, uh, to get to the great story. Um, and then on the other side of it, we do look at ways of expressing a story in the universe in other places around the games as a way of sort of onboarding people into the universe. And, and we look for opportunities. And in particular, that's something that I've spent a lot of time doing, which is where are places where we can get back to some, some very clean, pure, Halo storytelling for people to come on board for the first time and really get pulled into the universe. What does that mean, clean, pure Halo stories? What are the, if you needed to break it down, what are the core characteristics of a Halo story mm -hmm. and the feel of Halo? What does that mean mechanically? Is that movement speed? Is that, um, you know, the visual um, yeah. range of the character? I think from a universe perspective, 
it's, you know, we, we do have some, what we call our halo beliefs, which is um, how we think about the universe. So as we look at storytelling in different places, we, we try and ground in these four things. And I'm sure people have heard me talk about this before. The first is, um, is curiosity, which is really the idea that this is an epic sci-fi universe, but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's a mysterious world that you get to enter into, right? And it's scary and it's dark and there are aliens. And yet there's also this sense of curiosity driving you forward to, to sort of adventure through that unknown. And I think that's sort of core to how we want people to feel, whether they're playing or watching. Um, heroism is, and, and you saw that in, in that video, is, is really the heart of our, our universe. You know, what does it mean to be a hero? And the idea that any of us can be heroes. And uh, sort of that nature of heroism, I think, is very core to, to what we do. And you see that across campaign and multiplayer and in the storytelling. Uh, humanity, and that's really the idea that that this universe has very high stakes, humanity is at stake, but also you are a part of that and the idea that humanity is something worth saving. So how do you find an intimate story in this this background of, of epic sci-fi um, and huge stakes? Um, and finally, creativity, which sort of speaks to our, our community and our UGC and allowing people into our universe to both tell stories alongside with us and also create gameplay alongside with us and, and contribute to the universe. So those are things that sort of carry across all of the things that we do. And, and, and to me, that's sort of the heart of what the universe and the, and the IP is. It manifests itself in different ways. When you have a franchise with the name recognition and loyalty that Halo has, is there a temptation to say or how much discussion is there of, we could do a Halo spin on genre X, genre Y, you know, Halo Wars, for example. Is there a lot of internal discussion about, we could take this sort of formula and set it in the Halo universe and put our own spin on it? Or how much does the skill set of a shooter and making a shooter mm -hmm. translate to different genres? Yeah, it's, um, it's a honey trap. That, that <laughs> but it is. I mean, part of it is because as game developers, we're always interested in in different genres. And as as uh, sort of universe owners and shepherds, you want to express it in different ways. But we do recognize a our the first person shooter is the very core of our universe and everything that we do. And and more than anything, that needs to be great. I think that. You know, in the future, will we explore other genres? It's possible. But for that to happen, A, there needs to be a good reason for how it moves the universe forward and lets people experience it in a way that's different and meaningful. Um, and B, we have to be equipped on our side to be able to, to support creating a, a different game. You've got a background in, in UI design. Do you get to call on that at all when you <laughs> in your work with Halo? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, I... I uh, early on was uh, in UI design. Um, and uh, it's amazing now because uh, A, UI technology is strangely still really hard, which I swear I, you know. How so? So much of the game actually lives in, in the interface now, right? And, on, and, and you want to keep it simple. And, and there's a lot of technology that actually goes into, strangely, um, the UI, especially when you start to get into multiplayer systems. And there's this balance of how do you keep a player sort of immersed in the world that you're creating, but also make things really easy for them to do and intuitive. And when you start getting into lobbies and a lot of different options, and it actually gets heavy really quickly. Um, from a performance and asset standpoint. 
in Forza, the challenge with a game like that uh, is extraordinary with their interface. You know, for us, we we try and focus mostly just on how do we make multiplayer really easy for people to to get into. And yes, I, I have strong feelings about UI. It's the front face of your experience, um, and it sets the tone and the voice of your experience. Um, and uh, so I, I always have strong feelings about that. As creative people who gravitate to a game studio, if you end up working on one franchise for many years and that franchise is as closely associated with that studio, named after it even, does that ever feel like a constraint or like you're handcuffed to this franchise? or? Do you always feel like whatever creative thing we want to do, we can do it. We will just express it in a form in the Halo universe. Or, you know, is there sort of a, a chafing that happens after you spend a certain amount of time with one franchise? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think, I think for us, we still feel like there is so much that we can do that's different. And sometimes I feel like the constraints that are there, you put on yourself. And so I feel like uh, there are times when I think, People will move on to other things, and that's great for them to do. And frankly, sometimes they move on and they come back, right? Sometimes they do need a break from the thing they've been so steeped in for for a decade. Um, but I think for us, there's so much opportunity for new innovation and, and new ways for people to experience Halo that uh, that keeps us pretty energized. We're almost out of time, but when you look to bring in new blood, what kind of things do you look for? Are you playing an indie game and saying, hey, that was really creative, we could add that to our mega million dollar blockbuster? Or is that how you try to recruit? Or are you looking for people who have experience with Halo level franchises? Yeah, I mean, we look at a balance, right? The, it's Today, it's amazing because people are so skilled coming out of college. Like there, people are building indie games in college. Um, what I love about, about the indie game community right now is there is so much creativity and it's, you know, I think a lot of people who've worked on, especially sort of AAA blockbusters, which have all of the, the burden of, of big businesses behind them. Um, again, the constraints you tend to put on yourself in terms of, oh, we couldn't do that. Like we could never do X. And I think you get a lot of people from smaller game studios who don't have those constraints on themselves. So they can walk into a room and be like, why don't we do this thing? And so that's really valuable for us. And so for us, we're really looking for people who are going to be passionate about the IP and passionate about what they can bring to it in that future that they can see for it more so than uh, just AAA experience. Our timer hit zero as you finish that yes. sentence. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thanks, Kiki. Great Thank to talk you. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone else. Thank Appreciate you. it.